This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Surrogate Warfare, The Transformation of War in the 21st Century by Andreas Krieg and Jean-Marc Riccoli in 2019. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 7, Iran's Externalization of Strategic Defense Through Surrogate Warfare Like no other country, the Islamic Republic of Iran has perfected the use of human surrogates over the past four decades. Its very distinct strategic culture and setup of civil security sector relations has enabled it to master warfare by surrogate. In fact, Iran is probably the most experienced patron in the late 20th and early 21st centuries to conduct warfare by surrogate. However, Iran's lessons learned might in many ways not be transferable to Western states as they are too distinct to the Islamic Republic's ideological grand strategy and its military doctrine as well as its organization of the security sector, which compromises both conventional statutory and unconventional non-statutory forces. Nonetheless, instead of vilifying Iran, the West should try to understand how Iran has become so successful in force partnering. In Western media, the face of Iran's surrogate war has been Brigadier General Qasim Soleimani, the head of the notorious secretive branch of the IRGC, the Quds Force. The shadow commander has been dubbed the single most powerful operative in the Middle East today, appearing in photos next to Shia militiamen in Syria's Aleppo and on the front line against ISIS next to Peshmerga in Iraq. These images have fueled Western and Arab allegations that Iran is meddling in other countries' internal affairs, allegations that the Islamic Republic no longer tries to refute. Iran's subtle presence on most of the region's battlefields is founded on an expeditionary posture that dates to the days of the Islamic Revolution in 1979. Ever since, Iran's perceived conventional military inferiority vis-a-vis -vis opponents such as Israel, Saddam's Iraq, and the combined power of the Persian Gulf states has caused the the theocratic regime in Tehran to think of alternative, unconventional, asymmetrical means to guarantee the survival of the Islamic Revolution. Iran's strategic defense lies on the ability to mobilize militias as surrogates domestically and overseas to protect its borders as much as it relies on ballistic missiles, tanks, and fighter jets. What is widely conceived in the West and Arab world as an offensive military posture is in reality a purely defensive strategy of disruption, keeping state and non-state threats as far away from Iran's heartland as possible. Ideological narratives rooted in a universalist interpretation of Shiism provide the moral legitimacy to an internationalist agenda of protecting the Islamic Republic by surrogates overseas. This chapter will show how the regime in Tehran has come to embrace asymmetrical warfare by surrogate as its standard modus operandi of, of strategic defense. A particular focus will be directed toward the IRGC and its Quds force as the prime vehicle of Iranian surrogate warfare in the Middle East. Unlike Western Foreign Intelligence Services, or SOF, Iran not only externalizes the burden of war in an effort to disguise its activities, but has relied on surrogates as an effective tool to secure Iranian interests overseas. While the CIA, or MI6, might employ surrogates covertly on smaller projects of often more peripheral interest, surrogate warfare for Iran is an integral part of strategic deterrence and defense. Revolution Without Borders, Iran's Grand Strategy 
The Islamic Republic of Iran is the product of a popular revolution that, fueled by the ideologies of a dissident Shia clergy surrounding revolutionary religious leader Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, brought an end to 2,500 years of Persian monarchy. Although the Iranian revolution has been referred to as the Islamic Revolution, it began as a popular uprising against socio-economic insecurity and political oppression. Grievances Khomeini promised to correct by enforcing his vision of an Islamist regime based on social justice and security. Among the revolutionaries, Khomeini's camp quickly gained the upper hand, providing protesters with a powerful narrative of how to reorganize sociopolitics in Iran. Khomeini's idea of vilayat faqi the supremacy of clerical authority over sociopolitics within the confines of Islam, enjoyed great appeal among the youth and middle class. The Shia clergy provided an ideological legitimacy to a new form of Islamic governance that was opposed to political usurpation through Western secularism and authoritarian corruption that had allowed Iran's wealth to be misappropriated by the monarchy. In doing so, Khomeini's revolution in many ways made use of images and narratives that resounded well with Marxist and socialist opposition groups in Iran. Combining the fight for the liberation of the oppressed and disenfranchised with the Islamic ideal of clerical rule, the guiding principles of the Islamic revolution were widely embraced by the Iranian population that voted in favor of the Islamic Republic's constitution in 1979. The revolution had thrown the country into turmoil. With the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, going into exile and hundreds of thousands of Iranians protesting against his regime, the return of Khomeini to Tehran from exile in January 1979 brought little stability. Despite the fact that the majority of Iranians consented to the idea of vilayat al-Faqi, many institutions of the regime, including the military, remained in place. At the same time, severed relations with the U.S. government over the U.S. embassy hostage situation that unfolded toward the end of 1979 exposed the new regime to financial sanctions. Albeit triumphant, the first year of the revolution was tumultuous and characterized by uncertainty and security paranoia among loyal Khomeini followers who were haunted by decades of political persecution by their former regime and its henchmen. The position of the United States toward the ongoing hostage crisis also contributed to an environment of uncertainty. A flawed attempt by a U.S. commando operation to free the hostages in 1980 reinforced the widespread sentiments that the U.S., the Shah's most loyal sponsor, would try to instigate a counter-revolution to unsettle the Ayatollah's rule. Similar to other revolutions, the revolutionaries' fear of a counter-revolution preoccupied the nascent regime exacerbating an already existing collective inferiority complex in Shia Islam, a branch of Islam whose collective identity is built around the narrative of martyrdom and betrayal. Amid this climate, the narratives used by the revolutionaries became more radical and their outlook more universal. The Islamic Republic was in need of allies and partners at a time of uncertainty and perceived omnipresent threat. As the new president of Iran, Abdul Hassan Banir Sadr, proclaimed upon taking office, quote, Our revolution will not win if it is not exported. We are going to create a new order in which deprived people will not always be deprived, and oppressors will not always be oppressors, end quote. Thus, the reach of the Islamic revolution had to move beyond the borders of Iran and find followers among the disenfranchised and oppressed in the region. 
Khomeini's aim was to eradicate the borders of the Middle East, defying the Western concept of the nation-state in an effort to unite Muslims under the banner of the revolution. As it is stated in the preamble of the Islamic Republic's constitution, quote, The constitution is written with the hope that this will be the century of the universal rule of the oppressed and the defeat of all the oppressors, end quote. Iran was supposed to become the new epicenter of a new world order, providing Muslims disillusioned with Western ideologies of nationalism and socialism and with pan-Arabism with a new socio-political narrative. This messianic vision saw Iran as an Islamic city on a hill, inspiring Muslims around the world, irrespective of sectarian or ethnic identity, to unite to defend the universal ideas that the Islamic revolution was supposed to represent. As the cleric Hussein Ali Montazeri, a companion of Khomeini, explained in 1979, quote, One of the characteristics of Iran's revolution is that its mundane scope cannot be confined to certain geographical and continental areas. Indeed, our revolution is an Islamic revolution and not an Iranian one, end quote. The internationalist and universalist vision of the revolution transformed the efforts of building an Islamic republic in Iran from a local socio-political experiment to a pan-Islamic endeavor of building a new world order through a revolution without borders. The IRGC, which was set up within the turmoil of the revolutionary clashes, regarded its raison d'etre as protecting the achievements of the revolution from both the internal threats of Marxist revolutionary elements as well as from the cultural and military threat coming from the Western world, led by the United States. Thus, protecting the revolution was a military as well as a cultural struggle that went beyond the borders of Iran. As a bulwark against imperialist intervention by the West, most notably the United States, the Islamic Revolution was conceived by Khomeini as providing the ways and means for liberation movements to emancipate themselves from the alien, non-Islamic oppression, both in the socio-political and cultural spheres. While emphasizing the non-intervention principle and state sovereignty, most revolutionaries, particularly those within the IRGC, pursued an internationalist agenda that rejected the idea that state sovereignty could take precedence over the support to fellow Muslims. Article 154 of the Iranian constitution leaves a back door to allow what is essentially the delegation of the defense of the revolution to surrogates outside, quote, while scrupulously refraining from all forms of interference in the internal affairs of other nations, it supports the just struggles of the freedom fighters against the oppressors in every corner of the globe, end quote. Although the IRGC speaks about exporting the revolution, the support for Muslim liberation movements in particular was not really regarded as foreign in interference, owing to the perceived universal nature of the Islamic revolution's ambitions. Therefore, assisting oppressed fellow Muslims and their local liberation movements was as much a religious duty as it was seen as a means to secure the legitimacy and security of the Islamic Republic and its supreme leader, Khomeini. Executing this duty was regarded by the revolutionaries as defensive rather than offensive. The reason was that the export of the revolution was not just a humanitarian effort providing the disenfranchised and oppressed with means to liberate themselves, but also an effort to allow the regime in Tehran to exercise influence over minority groups in the region. Born of the inferiority complex of the early years of the revolution, which was confronted by counter-revolutionary elements domestically and a military onslaught externally, the export of the revolution remains a key component of Iran's defensive strategy. 
the formative Iran-Iraq War, which commenced in 1981, Western economic sanctions, and the U.S.-led operations in Iraq beginning in 1990 and 2003, and in Afghanistan in 2001, as well as the assassination of Iranian nuclear scientists, have further contributed to the regime's realization that the Islamic Republic had to hedge against the risks of potential encirclement by externalizing strategic defense to territories outside its heartland. Ariana Tabatabi calls this the campfire strategy, the attempt to keep the perceived omnipresent threats away from its territory, people, and interests. The externalization of the revolution to surrogates, often ideologically tied to the Islamic Republic, has become a grand strategy to safeguard the achievements of 1979. The support for liberation movements such as the PLO in Lebanon in the early 1980s, Hezbollah since 1982, Shia militias in Iraq since the beginning of the Iran-Iraq War, and the Houthis in Yemen since 2014 is seen as part of a pan-Islamic effort to reinstall divine political power, first in the Middle East and then worldwide. Taba Tabi cites Khomeini's successor, Ali Khomeini, who in a 2016 speech to families of fallen IRGC guardsmen explained that, quote, these individuals who leave here to go to Iraq or Syria in the name of defending the sites of the Prophet's family in the face of the Takfiris are in reality defending their own cities. Of course, their intent is God. But the reality of the situation is this. It is the defense of Iran, end quote. This universalist conceptualization of the Islamic Revolution does not differentiate between supporting the struggle of allied liberation movements overseas and the protection of the Iranian homeland. The vanguard of the revolutionaries that toppled the Shah's regime had already embraced the internationalist character of their ideological struggle before they returned to Iran in 1979. As exiled Islamist dissidents, they had built careers resisting state control and fighting for the internationalist agendas of resistance movements in Lebanon, Palestine, and Iraq. The likes of Mohammed Montazeri and Mohsen Rafigdoust had become instrumental in building the IRGC, but were not fighting for Iranian national interests per se, but a more powerful narrative of a new Islamic world order. For them, the revolution in Iran was just the first step in a much broader pan-Islamic and possibly global campaign. In the 1970s, they trained with Yasser Arafat's Fatah in Lebanon, fought alongside the PLO, and led their own Shia vigilante groups in Syria and Lebanon against Israel. In the formative years of the Islamic Republic, their leverage over the security sector and foreign and security policy had been decisive signaling to the clergy that Lebanon and the fight against Israel had to become the next focal point in an effort to consolidate the revolution. This was a group around the revolutionaries Mohammed Montazeri, Mohsen Rafiq Dust, and Ali Akbar Motashimipur that tapped into its local networks in Lebanon in 1982 to create a Shia resistance movement by consolidating a variety of different militia groups under the banner of the revolution. The Party of God, or Hezbollah, was to become the revolution's most important expeditionary project, defending the Islamic Republic on its front with Israel. As Malta Shimapur declared in a newspaper article in 2006, quote, Hezbollah is part of the regime in Iran. Hezbollah is an elementary factor in the Iranian military and security establishment. The connection between Hezbollah and Iran is much greater than the connection of a revolutionary regime with a party or a revolutionary organization outside of the borders of its country." End quote. 
Effectively, Iran's deep state proximate to its supreme leader regards Hezbollah as an extension of the regime overseas, allowing for the externalization of the burden of war to an overseas territory. While local Shia communities are accommodated generously through Hezbollah's socio-economic programs, Hezbollah operatives divert Israel's attention away from the Iran heartland to southern Lebanon. An anonymous representative of the Iranian regime cited in the newspaper Asharq al-Azwat in 2006 confirmed that Hezbollah, quote, is one of the elements of our strategic security. It serves as an Iranian frontline of defense against Israel, end quote. Apart from Israel, Iran's camp campfire strategy has long been preoccupied with Iraq. Ever since Saddam's invasion in 1981, influence over Shia communities in Iraq's south has been a means for the Islamic Republic to create a buffer zone to its west. By bogging down Iraqi troops in southern Iraq, fighting against Shia militias trained, equipped, and often directed by IRGC guardsmen, Iran was able to externalize the burden of warfare away from its homeland. With the U.S. invasion in 2003 and the socio-political disintegration of Iraq, further exacerbated by the Arab Spring, Iran was invited to expand its influence in Iraq and Syria. The fall of Saddam provided Iran with the opportunity to exponentially increase its strategic depth across the region. As King Abdullah II of Jordan noted in a 2004 interview, Iran could now consolidate its Shia crescent connecting Tehran with Baghdad, Damascus, and southern Lebanon. The Arab Spring provided the surrogate puppeteer General Soleimani with new opportunities to employ the narrative of the revolution to externalize Iran's strategic defense to neighboring countries. He stated in a 2011 speech in Qom that the Islamic Republic's, quote, defeat or victory will not be determined in Maran or Karam Shahar, but rather our borders have spread. We must witness victories in Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, and Syria, end quote. With considerations of strategic defense conflated with ideological principles, the extensive deployment of the IRGC and its Quds force across the region after 2011 has been justified by the religious duty to protect the family of the Prophet, referring to both the shrine cities of Karbala and Najaf in Iraq and the shrine of Saida Zainab in Syria. Syria is both an essential operational hub for IRGC units and an important lieu de mémoire in Shia Islam. According to a Basij militia member deployed to Syria, quote, Syria is the 35th province and a strategic province for the Islamic Republic. If the enemy attacks and the aim is to capture both Syria and Khuzestan, we would keep Syria. If we hold on to Syria, we would be able to retake Khuzestan. Yet if we lose Syria, we would not even be able to keep Tehran, end quote. Hence, the internationalist outlook of the revolutionary narrative that founded the Islamic Republic in 1979 has legitimized the externalization of strategic defense from the Iranian military to local surrogates. Militias, rebels, and vigilante groups, as well as quasi-state entities, such as Hezbollah, operate as the vanguard of the revolution, not only catering to local community interests, but also, and most importantly, serving Iran's security interests. The Islamic Revolution's pan-Islamist narrative thereby serves as a platform to integrate mostly Shia groups under the wings of a much wider cultural and socio-political insurrection. It has allowed Iran to find allies amid a context of paranoia, uncertainty, and fears of military inferiority. Iran's security sector, vigilantism over professionalism. 
The security sector of the Islamic Republic is highly diversified. It is a hybrid built on the semi-professional remnants of the Shah's military and the revolutionary forces that were created amid the turmoil of the revolution in 1979. Haunted by the reality of a well-equipped military with Western hardware and loyalties to the old regime, the Ayatollahs and the revolutionaries were preoccupied with ensuring that the regular armed forces were kept in check. The national defense of the nascent order was not supposed to be entrusted solely to a military whose officers had advanced through Persian imperial ranks. Instead, the popular revolution had to be secured by popular forces. Similar to other revolutionary regimes, the Islamic Republic was to raise a popular militia, or a people's army, in which sheer numbers and ideological fervor could compensate for the inferiority of the armed forces' competence and equipment. From the beginning, the revolutionary regime, consumed by mistrust and paranoia, favored the paramilitary groups that had made the revolution possible by setting up com committees to organize local governance and security provision. The fractured institutions of the police, the gendarmerie, and the military withdrew once they realized that the overwhelming power of the mass insurrection could no longer be contained. When on February 11, 1979, after the three glorious days of armed resistance, it became obvious that particularly the non-commissioned ranks of the armed forces were deserting or mutinying in large numbers, a delegation of military men in uniform openly pledged allegiance to Khomeini. The heroes of the revolution were the vigilante and militia groups who were able to fill the void left by the Shah's disintegrating security sector, paramilitary groups often working through local mosques and committees loyal to the ideological narrative of the Islamic revolution. Many of these paramilitary groups, calling themselves Guardians of the Revolution, or Paz Duran, were locally organized and maintained only a loose affiliation with the Revolutionary Council in Tehran. Eager to protect the revolution against counter-revolutionary elements, the Paz Duran arrested suspects believed to be loyalists to the Shah's regime, secured the border, and occupied strategic positions of defense and control in Iran's major cities. Controlled locally by preachers, clergymen, and at times even Marxist revolutionary ideologues, these guardians were, despite their ideological support of Khomeini, not in any way integrated into a chain of command that would lead directly to the supreme leader. Subordinating these often para rogue paramilitary groups under the direct control of the Revolutionary Council was a challenge that Khomeini tried to overcome by issuing a decree on May 5th of 1979, officially creating the IRGC and uniting the various factions under the umbrella of direct regime control. Despite the IRGC's formal development of its own chain of command, it developed into a hybrid organization consisting of vigilante groups as well as professional military units, combining asymmetrical guerrilla warfare with more conventional operational approaches. The opposition of the key leaders in the IRGC toward government control allowed the Paz Duran to retain a degree of decentralization and autonomy. Even today, the IRGC remains outside the regular chain of command and reports directly to the Supreme Leader, making it an ideological Praetorian Guard deeply anchored in a cleric-supporter nexus that formalizes Shia Islamist activism from the bottom up. From religious indoctrination to a local socio-political activity to vigilantism and effective warfighting, the IRGC is a vanguard religious military conflict complex that spans all parts of Iranian socio-politics with the declared aim of protecting the Islamic revolution both domestically and externally. At the heart of the IRGC's domestic agenda has been the Basij, 
Persian word for mobilization, the country's massive volunteer force. Article 151 of the Constitution of the Islamic Republic says that, quote, the government is obliged to provide a program of military training with all requisite facilities for all its citizens in accordance with the Islamic criteria in such a way that all citizens will be able to engage in the armed defense of the Islamic Republic of Iran, end quote. Instead of building its homeland defense around a capable and potent military force, Iran's homeland defense relies on local partisan warfare, whereby quantity and ideological superiority are weighted higher than quality and professionalism. Consequently, Iran does not envisage a levy en masse to be channeled to a conscript force embedded in a centralized military organization. The regime envisaged a, mili a militia force that would operate autonomously as a decentralized organization. The Basij would be the popular force, consisting of indoctrin indoctrinated and trained youth. Created in November of 1979, the Basij is a giant socio-cultural grassroots organization indoctrinating, training, and educating young volunteers from the urban periphery and rural areas. Unlike other reservist forces, the Basij was created as an inclusive organization open to anyone willing to commit to a program of religious indoctrination and paramilitary training, mostly members of rural communities, urban laborers, students, and provincial tribesmen. With the aim of supporting the IRGC in its paramilitary function, the Basij is the stay-behind auxiliary auxiliary force that would def defend the Islamic Republic in case of invasion by a conventional military. Basij militias are locally raised, undergo regular paramilitary training, and are sustained in approximately 3,000 local chapters. Constituting a decentralized militia organization with more than a million permanent members, the local Basij groups are designed to operate autonomously as partisans, attacking the rear of advancing enemy forces. In a dispersed war of attrition, the Basij forces would rely on numerical superiority and high morale. Swarm tactics would overwhelm militarily superior enemies who would be unable to secure their lines of communication once crossing the border into Iran. The IRGC and the Basij were instrumental in the homeland defense during the Iran-Iraq war. With the Islamic Republic ill-prepared for a conventional war with a well-equipped military just over a year after the revolution, its paramilitary doctrine was put to the test early on. Without adequate air cover and direct lines of communication between the various services, and with a decimated post-revolutionary officer corps, the Iranian military was not ready for the onslaught of Saddam's military. In addition, the United States, as Iran's most important sponsor under the Shah, had shifted its allegiance from Tehran to Baghdad, making it difficult for the Iranian military to acquire spare parts for its equipment. The state of shock that the country was in after the first operational success of the Iraqi military, however, did not undermine the morale of the Iranian people, who responded with unprecedented levels of patriotism. The IRGC, as well as the Basij, although mal-equipped, had no difficulty filling their ranks. Conventional military inferiority on the battlefield had to be compensated with superior numbers and morale. Thus, Iran's asymmetrical strategy was born. Some of the core of the Paz Duran already had experience with asymmetrical warfare, having fought alongside the PLO and Lebanese resistance movements against Israel in the 1970s. Most of the rank and file had to learn guerrilla tactics on the job. Small platoons of Basij militiamen in Paz Duran would operate autonomously from makeshift bases, targeting Iraqi supply lines. 
The counterattacks against the Iraqi offensive were uncoordinated and almost entirely based on lightly armed, highly mobile infantry. Apart from ambushes and night raids against the enemy's lines of communication, the IRGC introduced a new tactic, the human wave attack, an assault by an overwhelming number of men against Iraqi defensive positions that would exhaust the enemy through attrition. The numerical superiority and high morale allowed commanders to send entire platoons into nearly certain death in what was World War I-like carnage. Afshan Ostovar cites an Iraqi officer who recalls, quote, They came at us like a crowd coming out of a mosque on a Friday. Soon we were firing into dead men, some draped over the barbed wire fences and others in piles on the ground, having stepped in mines, end quote. Jeez. Shia symbols were used to make this butchery a spiritual experience, providing a more powerful legitimacy to this asymmetrical warfare than patriotism. Ultimately, the Iran-Iraq war for many Basij militiamen in Pazduran became a test of religious devotion. As a Basij militiaman remembers, quote, the war was not about getting Iraq, but about getting closer to God, end quote. The asymmetrical approach to warfare combined with the power of ideological commitment eventually allowed the Iranian forces to outmaneuver and push back the Iraqi forces. However, apart from harassing and demoralizing the enemy, the asymmetrical strategy rarely generated conclusive outcomes. Homeland defense came at a huge human cost that remains omnipresent in Iranian collective memory today. Yet it consolidated Iran's strategic reliance on vigilantism, sidelined the professional forces of the military, and gave birth to the major tenets of Iran's military doctrine. Iran's Military Doctrine – Mosaic Defense The Islamic Republic's military doctrine that arose from the turmoil of the revolution and the consequent traumatic experience of the Iran-Iraq war is founded on a concept of mosaic defense, namely network warfare of small, agile units that operate autonomously from strategic command rather than brigade-level maneuverist warfare. Iran is one of the first nation-states that has prioritized asymmetrical warfare as its primary response to threats from conventionally superior neighbors. Asked about the potential threat of a combined U.S.-Israeli assault on Iran, the deputy IRGC commander, Moljaba Zanur, declared in an interview in 2010, quote, The entire country will become a mosaic of operational areas that does not even leave a safe spot in the desert for the enemy to maneuver. End quote. The idea behind this mosaic is a greater decentralization of command and operations and a delegation of warfighting to relatively independent local units. The mosaic relies on sector defense, whereby small agile forces operate locally instead of contributing to a strategic concentration of forces on the national level. Rather than trying to achieve decisive victories in strategic concentrated battles, Iran's doctrinal approach favors spontaneous paramilitary battles of dispersion without decisive victories. While conventional Western military doctrine seeks to achieve quick decisive victories, Iran is willing to sustain a state of attritional warfare for an indefinite period with a high degree of strategic patience. The IRGC and the Basij play a central role in this mosaic defense, Defa and Mosaic, as their forces were designed and trained to sustain battles of attrition against professional military forces. Their decentralized command structure and relatively local autonomy allows them to independently execute a wider strategic ideological intent. Combined with tactical innovation such as swarm tactics and human wave attacks, the numerical superiority of devoted volunteers 
provides Iran with its most feared operational advantage over conventional militaries. The success of Mosaic defense relies on quantity over quality and ideology over professionalism. Superior numbers and high morale boosted by the powerful ideological narrative of the Islamic Revolution provide the backbone of Iran's unconventional approach to defense. As former Prime Minister Hussein Mousavi commented in 1981, quote, The power of faith can outmaneuver a complicated war machine used by people bereft of sublime religion, end quote. Thus, one strength of the Iranian doctrine is its embedment in an ideological narrative that presents any attack on the Islamic Republic as an attack on Shia Islam that needs to be repelled as part of a divine duty. The belief that faith can be more powerful than the combined arms of conventional militaries is an idea that, for the regime in Tehran, seems to be confirmed by the military successes of its surrogates in the region, as will be discussed later. Mosaic defense, however, does not provide Iran with an effective tool to translate influence into control. The idea of spontaneous battles of dispersion aims at disrupting enemy operations, but cannot deliver control over territory or populations. Seizing and holding territory through mosaic dispersed operations employing guerrilla tactics appears to be an unattainable goal. Instead, Iran's military doctrine hopes to spoil enemy operations, demoralizing and decimating enemy willpower and capability over an indefinite period of time. Hence, unable to bring about a decisive victory, Iran remains in a constant state of emergency without being able to return to a state of stability. Therefore, Iran's campfire strategy of exporting the revolution overseas allows the Islamic Republic to retain a degree of stability at home while leaving neighboring countries in a state of constant conflict and attrition by empowering its surrogates. Expeditionary Warfare by Surrogate Externalizing the burden of warfare to surrogate militias appears to be a natural move by the regime in Tehran. With a grand strategy built around a universal concept of revolution without borders, and with a security sector prioritizing volunteerism founded on socio-cultural vigilantism, keeping threats at arm's length outside its borders through the employment of non-state surrogates appears to be a logical doctrinal move. The idea of the campfire strategy, deflecting threats away from Iran's heartland and confronting the enemy overseas, means that Iran's strategic defense primarily takes place in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. With Israel and the United States as the declared main adversaries, Iran, well aware of its conventional military inferiority, has developed asymmetrical warfare scenarios that, though unable to strategically weaken these adversaries, can disrupt their actions in Iran's buffer zones. While internally, the Basij militias are the last line of defense, the surrogate militias often modeled on the IRGC and the Basij are Iran's first line of defense. It is these forces that many Western observers and analysts often regard as Iran's offensive surrogate vanguard, trying to aggressively intervene in the domestic affairs of neighboring countries. In reality, however, Iran's posture is widely defensive with the aim of foreclosing the occurrence of another fateful invasion into Iranian territory similar to the one in 1981. With almost a million Iranian casualties and more than $600 billion worth of damages in Iran, the trauma of the Iran-Iraq war drives Tehran's defensive strategy of expeditionary surrogate warfare. By keeping its worst enemies at bay, bogging them down in attritional, dispersed surrogate battles in neighboring countries, the Islamic Republic hopes that an invasion by a foreign conventional military can be avoided. 
In its early days, the Islamic Republic's primary vehicle to export the revolution was the Office of Liberation Movement, OLM, simply known as Movement, Nezhatha. Methi Hashemi and Mohammed Montazeri, two of the most rogue internationalist revolutionaries rejecting the idea of building an Islamic Republic limited to the borders of Iran, helped create the OLM. Their highly ideological approach, their objection to state control, and their obsession with unconventional asymmetrical tactics set the agenda of the OLM in 1979. Originally a part of the IRGC, the OLM aimed at catalyzing mostly Shia liberation movements and terrorist cells in the Middle East. Separated from the IRGC in 1983, the OLM developed increasingly into a rogue outfit, not just supporting Shia movements overseas, but also becoming more and more involved in covert terrorist operations and assassinations that were not sanctioned by the Supreme Leader. The OLM allegedly channeled explosives and operatives to Saudi Arabia to plan an attack while also trying to assassinate the Syrian Charjda affairs in Tehran. With Khomeini trying to reach out to the United States and the Persian Gulf states amid the ever-costlier war in Iraq, the OLM's autonomous operations became a liability. Hashemi was ordered back to Tehran in 1986 and executed, bringing the OLM to an end. The experience of the OLM as a semi-autonomous organization in charge of surrogate warfare led to the realization that surrogate warfare could no longer be a rogue tool of the Islamic Republic. In the meantime, the IRGC had already set up a replacement for the OLM in 1982, the Quds Force, a paramilitary elite force acting as the IRGC's de facto external affairs branch. The Quds Force would become a state-sanctioned organization charged with the export of the revolution and the liquidation of opponents domestically and externally. The head of the Quds Force would be on par with the IRGC commander and report directly to the Supreme Leader, ensuring that surrogate warfare would become an effective tool at the direct disposal and control of Khomeini. The Quds Force the mild success of its performance in countering the Iraqi offensive in 1981 increased the IRGC's confidence in its abilities, prompting it to call for the establishment of the Quds Force, a multinational Muslim force organized and trained by the IRGC to liberate Jerusalem. While initially the proposal fell on deaf ears among the Ayatollahs during the war with Iraq, the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon made the regime in Tehran rethink the creation of an external affairs arm of the IRGC to tackle Israel head-on in Lebanon. At the same time, the IRGC could employ the Quds force in Iraq to empower or create local surrogate forces that would loyally fly the banner of the Islamic Revolution as delegates of Khomeini's ideological narrative. Neither in Lebanon nor in Iraq, the few hundred guardsmen who would initially make up the Quds force would engage enemy forces directly. They were supposed to build a web of alliances across the spectrum of disenfranchised Shia communities that would raise militias that would allow the Islamic Republic to externalize its burden of warfare. Today, the size of the Quds force is estimated to be between 5,000 and 15,000 operatives operating across several areas of responsibility that are under the control of different geographical directorates. Apart from the Directorate of Western Countries, the Quds Force's most important areas of responsibility are Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon-slash-Palestine. The Quds Force has been instrumental in the setup of Hezbollah in Lebanon in 1982 to fight Israel, the foundation of the Badr Corps in Iraq in 1983 to take on Saddam, 
the formation of the Kataib Hezbollah in Iraq in 2003, the consolidation of the Muqtada al-Sadr's Jaish al-Ma'idi in Iraq in 2005 to challenge the U.S.-led coalition, the establishment of the Syrian's People Army, Jaish al-Shabi, to contain the Syrian opposition, and the creation of the PMU in Iraq 2014 to counter ISIS. In doing so, the Quds force reaches back to the extensive combined expertise and experience of the IRGC in the Basij as unconventionally fighting ideological militias. Most Quds operatives do not operate in uniform, but as plainclothes officers based in Iranian embassies. The organization runs training camps overseas in Lebanon, Syria, and formerly Sudan, and at home in Iran, preparing its surrogates for guerrilla and terrorist operations. It controls a range of intermediaries who help it provide its operatives and surrogates overseas with financial support, equipment, and arms. In the West, the Quds Force has often been referred to as a vehicle for state-sponsored terrorism. In conservative counter-terrorist circles, the Quds Force is believed to have a well-deserved reputation for being the most organized, disciplined, and violent terrorist organization in the world particularly in the United States, whose operations in Iraq after 2003 had been severely impacted by the disruptive activities of Iranian surrogates, the view that the Quds Force is a terrorist organization is widespread, causing the George W. Bush administration in 2007 and the Donald Trump administration 10 years later to designate it, among other Iranian institutions, a proliferator and supporter of terrorism. But by simply labeling the Quds Force a terrorist organization, one may fail to understand its complexity within the strategic framework of the Islamic Republic. While the Quds Force has funded terrorist activities in the past, terrorism is only a niche capability of the force. From an Iranian point of view, the Quds Force is an essential part of the campfire strategy, exporting hostilities to neighboring countries in an effort to discourage designated enemies from fighting on Iran's own soil. Therefore, as Taba Tabai highlights, the Quds Force is at the forefront of Iranian counterterrorism efforts containing the spread of ISIS in Iraq and Syria since 2014. The Quds Force's strategy of relying on surrogate militia forces may have actually fueled insurgency and destabilized both countries further, which, according to Yaakov Katz and Yoaz Hendel, is another of the Quds Force's primary objectives. By destabilizing neighboring states and undermining their legitimacy, Iran can create conducive conditions and the freedom to maneuver to execute its surrogate warfare policy. Surrogate Selection Iran as a country founded on a messianic ideology would be expected to select its surrogates based on ideological and sectarian loyalty. However, Iran is politically torn between ideological hardliners and those propagating a more pragmatist approach to foreign and security policy. On the whole, despite a strong ideologically driven rhetoric, Iran and the IRGC as its primary ideological organization have proven to develop increasingly into pragmatic actors, making decisions based on real politic rather than religious dogma. David Manashri argues that since the end of the 1980s, quote, ideology was subordinated to interests, and actual policy succeeded somehow in combining the early, early ideological conviction with a healthy dose of regard for national interests. With few exceptions, state interests ultimately have superseded revolutionary dogma in both foreign relations and domestic politics, end quote. 
since the beginning of the Syrian civil war, the IRGC has tried to distance itself from the image of being solely a sectarian actor and supporting exclusively sectarian groups. In particular, Qasim Soleimani, the infamous commander of the Quds Force, has tried to counter these allegations by posing with Christians, Kurds, and Sunni Arabs in both Syria and Iraq. Despite the fact that the vast majority of surrogates trained, equipped, and financed by the Quds Force are from Shia communities and groups mainly across the Middle East, Soleimani has proven to be highly pragmatist in his approach but to selecting viable surrogates. For the protection of Iranian national interests, particularly the containment of the jihadist threat and the survival of the Bashar al-Assad regime, the Quds Force has supported a diverse range of groups, such as Christian and Alawite volunteers in Syria and Kurdish Peshmerga forces in northern Iraq. The ideological crusade against Israel even seems to justify the support of Sunni Islamist groups, such as Hamas in Gaza. In the axis of resistance that Iran considers to be Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and Palestine, the Quds Force has partnered with groups whose strategic interests overlap with those of the Islamic Republic. In doing so, Iran and the Quds Force have produced a pragmatist agenda. While Shia groups are more prone to ideological franchising and are therefore often the preferred partner, the Quds Force, when necessary, has displayed an approach that resembles the old Sanskrit idiom of my enemy's enemy is my friend. The Islamic Revolution's narrative of fighting for the liberation of the oppressed thereby merely serves as a legitimizing cover to advance Iranian strategic and operational interests. Unlike other patrons, Iran has rarely relied on existing paramilitary groups to externalize its burden of strategic defense. For the most part, the IRGC and the Quds Force have invested in creating franchises that, resem that resemble their patrons' command and control structure and tactics. The two most prominent examples of IRGC franchises created overseas are the Badr Corps in Iraq and Hezbollah in Lebanon since 1982. Both organizations were modeled on the IRGC as a socio-military organization with a paramilitary wing that had extensive communal support. Similar to the IRGC in Iran, communal support was achieved through social programs, cultural activities, and economic power, all embedded in a powerful Shia Islamist narrative. In Iraq, the Supreme Council of Islamist Revolution in Iraq functioned as the socio-political umbrella for the Badr Corps, which was trained and equipped in Iran before being funneled back across the border. The nexus between local communal activism and militias would guarantee the surrogates long-term survival in what was envisioned to be a long, asymmetrical conflict. Iran has also invested in the creation of smaller paramilitary outfits, such as Kataib Hezbollah, an elite Shia paramilitary group in Iran modeled on the Quds Force and founded by a senior Badr Corps operative with links to Soleimani. Again, the IRGC's guerrilla tactics and experience of using explosives provided the blueprint for Kataib Hezbollah in 2007. Equally successful are the IRGC's militia franchises modeled on the Basij. In recent years, the Quds Force has increasingly flown in Basij commanders to Syria and Iraq to help set up local communal militia groups able to fight against jihadists. As predominantly locally raised forces defending local territory, Basij franchises in Syria and Iraq rely on the expertise of the Iranian Mobilization Force in creating strong civil militia bonds. These provincial units have similarly loose, decentralized command structures and are trained in the basics of urban combat. 
The Quds Force relies on thousands of Basij militiamen to conduct the training of these people's forces, often dubbed the Syrian or Iraqi Basij. In Syria, the Jayesh al-Shabi, or People's Army, has developed into the backbone of the Assad regime's forces, with more than 42 groups and 128 local units across the country, consisting mostly of lo loyal Shia, Alawite, or Christian volunteers. Faced with the ISIS offensive in Iraq in 2014, the Quds Force transferred the model to Mesopotamia, creating the Iraqi version of the Basij, the so-called so Hashid al-Shabi, or PMU. Here, most recruits were volunteers from Shia communities, ready to protect their local communities from the jihadist peril, a well-established boogeyman. Trained, equipped, and paid directly by Iran, most of these militias initially did not answer to the central government in Iraq, but to the Quds Force commander. Other Iranian surrogate franchises, such as the Al-Abbas Brigade, raised to protect the shrine of Zayida Zainab in Syria, are entirely sectarian forces. Here, Iran is recruiting Shia volunteers from across the Middle East to protect a holy site important in Shia Islam from the onslaught of Sunni Arab anti-Assad militias. Based on a religious narrative of the defense of Shiaism from infidels, volunteers from Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, and even Afghanistan are being trained and paid by the Basij and Hezbollah fighters to execute an essential religious duty. In the meantime, Afghan volunteers have also been deployed to operate alongside local Jayesh al-Shabi across Syria. Moreover, the Quds forces also worked with non-franchised surrogates, that is, surrogates who were not created by Iran as proxies but autonomous movements or militias groups. Groups such as Hamas, a Sunni Islamist paramilitary group in Palestine, the Houthi militia, a Zadi Shia movement in northern Yemen, and the Shia military Jaish al-Mahdi, run by the cleric Sadr in Iraq after 2005, have been selected as surrogates when they display a considerable overlap of interests with the Islamic Republic. Hamas, which has emerged from the Muslim Brotherhood circles in Palestine and Egypt, has long been the most effective force outside Hezbollah to take on the Israel Defense Forces IDF. As a Sunni Islamist group, Hamas does not have any direct ideological link with the concept of the Islamic Revolution beyond the demonization of Israel. After losing support from the Assad regime in 2006, Hamas had to look for support elsewhere, and Iran saw an opportunity to make the Islamist group its surrogate on the front against Israel. In line with its grand strategic vision to liberate the oppressed, Iran has employed the Quds Force to organize the training, logistical support, arms and equipment, and financial support of Hamas militants in their operations against Israel. Iran's support for Jaish al-Mahdi saw the Islamic Republic partnering with an external Shia movement in Iraq, a movement that, albeit ideologically embedded in Shiaism, had only theological ties to the clerical tradition of Qom in Iran. Sadr, himself the offspring of a prominent Shia clerical family, had set up the militias in resistance to the provincial authority created by the U.S.-led coalition after the invasion of 2003. Iran saw an opportunity to consolidate its leverage over Shiites in neighboring Iraq while weakening the coalition's hold on the country. Quds force operatives channeled explosives, detonators, and money to Jaish al-Mahdi while training militiamen in urban combat in Iraq and Iran. Another extraordinary Iranian non-franchise surrogate has been the Houthi movement in northern Yemen. 
The political religious movement emerged in the 1990s within disenfranchised communities of Zaidi Shiites, defying the political status quo and calling on the creation of a Zaidi imamate. As such, despite sectarian connotations, the Houthi movement did not have any natural ideological links with the concept of the Islamic Republic, so allegations that the Houthis are an external creation of the IRGC have to be rejected as false. In fact, the IRGC and the Quds force arrived in Yemen only after the movement had already taken over the Yemeni capital, Sana'a, in 2014, recognizing the Houthis' potential as a means to disrupt Saudi influence in the country. Without any substantial ideological links between the movement and the regime in Tehran, it was the declared aim of the Houthis to challenge the regional status quo of U.S.-backed Saudi dominance that made the movement look like an attractive partner for Iran. Despite the fact that Iran supplied the militants with arms and training while financially supporting them in their humanitarian endeavors, Iran's commitment to the Houthis remains relatively limited. Finally, the Quds Force occasionally establishes liaisons with private individuals and groups that act as conduits for its terrorist operations. At the height of the nuclear crisis in 2011, when an Iranian nuclear scientist was assassinated on the streets of Tehran in the IAEA, started to suggest that Iran's nuclear program had military dimensions, the Quds Force, and particularly its Specialist Unit 400, looked for Western targets it could eliminate overseas. Several assassinations and bombing attempts against Western and Arab diplomats were attempted via private middlemen who at times would rely on hitmen to execute their missions. These surrogates were neither always Shia, nor did they necessarily believe in the cause of the Islamic Revolution, but were being hired as henchmen in exchange for money. Levels of Support In this chapter, we will also look at the different levels of support Iran provides to its surrogates and differentiate between support on the strategic, operational, and tactical levels. Strategic Support on the strategic level, the ideological dimension is the most essential aspect to be nourished in an effort to consolidate ideological integration between the narratives of the Islamic Revolution and the local efforts of the surrogates. Particularly, when establishing franchise surrogates within Shia communities, the initial step of Iranian surrogate warfare has been ideological indoctrination that prepares the ground for more extensive military and financial support. The experience of unsustainable patron-surrogate relations between the Islamic Republic and the secular Palestinian Fatah in Lebanon in the early 1980s illustrated to the IRGC the importance of religious and ideological compatibility between sponsor and delegate. Therefore, target communities are prepared for force partnering with the Quds Force by participating in courses and seminars organized by Iranian clerics. The Quds Force can thereby rely on more than 18,000 mullahs who are employed by the IRGC as an ideological vanguard that can be deployed overseas. In the case of setting up Hezbollah after 1982, the Paz flew in several mullahs to conduct religious training courses alongside the military trainers of the IRGC. In other instances, surrogates are flown to Iran to receive ideological training in the Quds Force's own training camp in northern Tehran. The Hezbollah model of tapping into a local community and raising a community-based militia force still serves as a point of reference for contemporary Iranian surrogate franchising. 
apart from adopting a similar organizational and command and control, control structure for Hezbollah, Iranian surrogates are locally raised and embedded within local community structures. Similar to the Basij militaries in Iran, surrogate forces operate in their home regions and maintain a population-centric posture. Once established, the Quds Force prepares its surrogates logistically for the reception of financial and material support. Despite the elaborate sanctions regimes established by the international community against Iran, the Islamic Republic has still been able to provide its surrogate forces with billions of dollars worth of financial and material aid annually. It is impossible to ascertain how much aid Iran is able to provide, considering that funds are being transferred via obscure channels involving businesses and corporations owned by the IRGC and financial institutions overseas that act as intermediaries. Estimates of the costs of Iranian surrogate warfare over the past three decades range between $20 billion and $80 billion in total with individual surrogates such as Hezbollah or Syrian surrogate franchising receiving several hundred million dollars a year. The Quds Force can rely on an extensive network of charitable trusts called bonyads and clerics who raise donations locally across the Shia world. Apart from raising funds, these networks can also be used to redistribute funds from one locality to another. Even the collected kums, a religious tax paid by Shia communities to local sources of emulation, grand ayatollahs, have been used to fund surrogate operations overseas. Apart from using regular state-owned banks, such as the Meli Bank, to channel funds overseas, the Quds Force can use resources made available via intermediary banks overseas. Well documented is the fact that the Iranian central bank uses the Chinese Kunlun Bank to process Iran's income from hydrocarbon sales, earnings that are being made available to the Quds Force through a bank account in China. Hmm. Moreover, the Quds Force has been able to exploit the wide-reaching overseas business ties of the IRGC's extensive industrial complex to smuggle material and financial aid across the border despite existing sanctions. Materiel, mostly small arms, mortars, rocket-propelled grenades, and ammunition, is flown by Mahan Air or Yas Air on cargo and regular passenger planes disguised as humanitarian aid from Iran to Iraq, Syria, or Yemen. Supplies going to surrogates in Syria and Lebanon are flown to Damascus and distributed via trucks to the relevant recipients. Even long- and mid-range missiles destined for Hezbollah in southern Lebanon are being shipped via the land route from Damascus across the border. Arms, ammunition, and explosive devices have been smuggled via land across the porous border between Iraq and Iran, making the resupply of Iraqi surrogates a relatively simple task. Larger shipments of weapons have been transshipped via Port Sidon and Hodeidah to Yemen, Gaza City, Beirut, or Tartus to Syria. Allegations have also been raised that the Quds Force built a factory in the Sudanese capital of Khartoum that produces small arms that are smuggled by the local Islamist group National Islamist Front via Egypt and the Sinai to Gaza in support of Hamas. In other instances, larger shiploads of arms and ammunition have been transferred to smaller vessels and skiffs in northern Somalia or Port Sidon to be shipped across the Bab al-Mandab Strait to Yemen in support of Houthi rebels. Operational Support The most significant contribution of the Quds Force to its surrogates operations has been training, education, and advice provided by operatives in Arabic to surrogate forces locally or in the various training camps run by the IRGC in Iran. 
Some training camps specialize in recruits from particular backgrounds. Kurds are trained in different camps in Iran than Afghans, Tajiks, or Arabs from Iraq, Syria, or Lebanon. The expertise of the IRGC to conduct training and education across a spectrum of different ideological and military studies is founded on the training experience of the early Pazdaran, who were trained by the PLO and Fatah in the 1970s. Their combined experience in unconventional warfare was first applied and tested during the creation of Hezbollah in 1982. With Syrian support, 1,500 IRGC operatives established a small training facility in the Lebanese Bekaa Valley, where, initially, 300 Shia militants were trained and ideological indoctrinated as future trainers. Eventually, Hezbollah developed its own training scheme, which, although supervised and monitored by IRGC commanders, became increasingly autarkic in the generation of recruits and trainers. Today, IRGC prides itself on having indirectly trained more than 100,000 Hezbollah volunteers in the past three decades via this self-propelling scheme. Now, Hezbollah instructors are being directly deployed by the Quds Force to train surrogates in Syria and Iraq. Depending on the training and education requirements, the Quds Force employs IRGC, Basij, or its own SOF trainers. Most courses for Syrian and Iraqi militias last two weeks and provide recruits with the tactical basics required in urban combat or rural guerrilla warfare. The combined expertise of the IRGC, the Basij, and Hezbollah in night combat, ambushing, and swarm tactics provides trainers with an extensive pool of operational and tactical skills that can be transferred to recruits. Specialist courses for sniping, anti-air, and anti-dissident operations are being provided by experts in the field. The Quds Force's portfolio of terrorism and sabotage enables its specialists to train smaller teams in the construction and use of improvised explosive devices against armored vehicles and soft targets. Apart from tactical training, Quds, Force's opera Quds Force operatives seem to assign a lot of importance to educating surrogate recruits on the moral principles of war, ensuring that surrogates do not alienate local populations. Reuters cites a young Christian militia recruit in Syria, quote, On the first day of our training, the Iranian officer overseeing our course said, I know exactly what is going on in Syria and want to tell you one thing. If you join the National Defense Army for looting and not to defend your country, you will die an ugly death and go to hell, end quote. Apart from ensuring that tactical combat teams would operate effectively and somewhat ethically, Quds Force operatives, embedded in the surrogate's chains of command, provide maneuver advice and operational direction. As such, the Quds Force is often involved in operational planning based on intelligence gathered by Iranian manned and unmanned aircraft. Human intelligence, surveillance, target acquisition, and reconnaissance data provide Iranian surrogates with an immense operational advantage over other non-state actors. In the fight against ISIS, the Quds Force's intelligence support to local militias has proven to be a game-changer, providing Iran's surrogates with a military advantage over the jihadists. Particularly, Iran's superior firepower, delivered from the air or by artillery, has become an important force multiplier for its surrogates. Coordinating fire support and delivering direct combat support in the fight against ISIS, the Quds Force has covered the entire spectrum of surrogate support, from training and equipping to operational direction to direct combat support. Tactical Support On the tactical level, the Quds Force's support for its surrogates very often goes beyond direction, advice, or mere combat support. 
Evidence from social media suggests that Quds forces and Basi's operatives have a combat mission of their own, embedding with tactical surrogate teams to directly engage in hostilities. Some of the most pressing evidence of the Quds forces' tactical involvement in combat can be seen in clips shot by IRGC filmmaker Hadi Bagbani that were seized by Syrian opposition forces in 2013 and released to the British Broadcasting Corporation. The BBC's documentary Iran's Secret Army, drawing on this raw material, clearly shows how the Quds force operates on the tactical level in partnership with Basij-type's surrogates. Apart from training exercises and reconnaissance missions, identifying targets for the surrogates, the Quds force commanders guide locally raised surrogate platoons to the target, engaging in direct combat with Syrian opposition forces. More sophisticated activities, such as reconnaissance, planting roadside bombs, and laying mines, are conducted by skilled Quds force operatives while surrogate forces act as mere infantry in guerrilla warfare operations. In doing so, particularly surrogate forces modeled on the Basij militia seem to be dependent on the command and leadership skills of Quds force commanders and have little tactical autonomy. IRGC franchises such as Hezbollah, the Badr Corps, and Kataib Hezbollah, on the contrary, display a high degree of autonomy and require little direct tactical support from IRGC or Quds Force operatives, as will be discussed in the section below. Control versus Autonomy The surrogate wars of the Islamic Republic are in many ways dissimilar to those fought by the West in that the relationship between principal and agent or patron and surrogate is much more transformational than transactional in nature. While most patrons achieve surrogate compliance with strategic and operational objectives through a transactional system of reward and punishment, the Islamic Republic has found a more transformational approach to managing its relationship with surrogates. That is to say, through means of intellectual and ideological inspiration, Iran has achieved almost unprecedented levels of control, particularly over its franchise surrogates. Despite the fact that transactional components of material support to surrogates do play an important role, Iran has, through the Quds Force, been able to create loyal armies of surrogates who willingly internalize the universalist ideological narrative of the Islamic Revolution. As a consequence, the trade-off between autonomy and control, whereby the patron seeks to maximize control while the surrogate seeks to maximize autonomy, appears to be less of an issue in most of the patron-surrogate relationships Iran is managing. Key to the transformational character of surrogate control is the ideological dimension that the Islamic Republic exploits with most of its surrogates, although exceptions might be made in the relationship with Hamas and the Houthi movement. Yet, the overlap of Iran's strategic interests with the fundamental interests of Hamas and the Houthis guarantees a certain degree of surrogate compliance on the strategic level. Considering that Iran is predominantly concerned with disruption and less with the actual achievement of tangible objectives in both Palestine and Yemen, the ways and means both surrogates intend to employ is of lesser concern. The most important guarantor for Iran's transformational impact has been its reliance on the ideological narrative of the Islamic Revolution, providing surrogates with a strategic vision legitimizing their actions and activities as clients of the supreme leader. Iran has carefully constructed its image as the divine agent of the oppressed and disenfranchised that, though promoting the Islamic Revolution, aims to create a universal vilayat al-Faqi, an image that resonates well particularly with disenfranchised Shia communities. 
thereby perceiving their contribution as an essential part of establishing a universal supreme clerical rule, Iranian surrogates do not regard themselves as agents of a foreign Iranian agenda, but as an organic component of the revolution. The Islamic Republic's ideological rhetoric about protecting the Prophet's family from the onslaught of jihadist unbelievers disguises Iran's pragmatic agenda that, to a great extent, is defined by the pursuit of strategic interests. Surrogates are provided with a genuine sense of belonging and identity that appears to exceed realist notions of interests. Maxims such as, my enemy's enemy is my friend, might apply to Iran's relationship with Hamas, but appear alien to its relationships with franchise surrogate outfits. The depth of the strategic relationship between patron and surrogate achieved through the grand strategic integration of the surrogate into the ideological narrative of the Islamic Revolution is further nourished by the strategic organizational ties between the Islamic Republic's state organs and surrogates. The fact that Iran has been instrumental in either establishing or consolidating most of its surrogates helps in maintaining an extensive leverage of these organizations. The raison d'etre of most IRGC or Basij franchises managed by the Quds force is inextricably linked to the constitutive narrative of the revolution and the survival of the Islamic Republic. Modeled on Iranian state organs, its franchise surrogates do not experience a clash of organizational values because those intermediaries with which surrogates cooperate, such as the Quds Force, are themselves semi-professional organizations that rely on vigilantism. As such, the franchise surrogates almost operate as de facto state organs, though less in a legal way than much more in a spiritual sense. The intellectual, ideological, and organizational alignment of interests, objectives, and means on the strategic level make it difficult to disconnect the likes of Hezbollah or the Badr Corps from Iranian chains of command. The relationship between Hezbollah and the Islamic Republic, for example, has gone beyond those of other patron-surrogate relationships, establishing a symbiosis of mutual dependency. Even socio-political actors, such as Hezbollah, who are able to generate their own domestic income through donations and taxes, have developed a long-term dependency on sponsor funding and material support. With hundreds of millions of dollars being dispersed annually to Hezbollah, the Iraqi PMUs, and the Syrian Jaish al-Shabi, an Iranian withdrawal of support would undermine the ability of these groups to pay their fighters or acquire appropriate equipment and arms. However, it would be overstated to declare Hezbollah or all of the Iraqi PMUs to be obedient followers of the Islamic Republic. Iran has always assigned great importance to their surrogates' local identity. In fact, Iran has created surrogates that merge the universalist ideology of the Islamic Revolution with local communal grievances. Iranian surrogates such as Hezbollah, Jaish al-Shabi, Shia militaries in the Iraqi PMUs, the Badr Corps and Kataib Hezbollah have acted as alternative communal security providers to their respective state. Thereby, these surrogates have built public legitimacy with local communities that felt disenfranchised by central government authority. Consequently, Hezbollah members do not see themselves as mere agents of Iran, but highlight the Lebanese and Arab character of the organization that, although proud to be allied with the Islamic Republic, retains autonomy in local decision-making. Also, many PMU militias reject the idea of establishing an Iranian satellite entity within Iraq. Instead, 
Although Iranian surrogates fight under the banner of the Islamic Revolution, Iranian strategic control does not amount to effective bondage. Hence, while Iran is able to enhance the sustainability of its surrogates through tight communal relations, this policy provides the surrogate with levels of autonomy that balance Tehran's effective strategic control. On the operational level, Iran retains a considerable degree of control, depending on the presence of Quds Force or other IRGC advisors. For, while, for example, Hezbollah plans and executes military operations effectively with only occasional Quds Force advice, other groups, such as the Jaish al-Shabi and some of the PMUs, cannot properly function without the direction and control of Quds Force operatives, providing everything from pre-combat planning and intelligence gathering to direct combat support services. But the Syrian government has also received considerable operational advice and direction in anti-dissidence operations during the early stages of the uprising in 2011 whereby Quds Forces specialists provided training and direction into how to quell political protests. In Iraq, Iran's operational control takes a more formalized route with the IRGC, Quds Forces representatives, and intelligence specialists being deployed in every Shia-majority province to advise local governors. Also, despite PMU, PMU's de jure integration into the Iraqi chain of command, their operations remain widely under the operational control of the Quds Force. Although the PMUs remain officially under the control of the Iraqi National Security Advisory, which reports to Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, individuals such as Hadi al-Amari, head of the Badr Corps, and Abu Mahdi al-Mohandes, head of Qatayib Hezbollah, act as de facto states or heads of the PMU committee outside the Prime Minister's control. Both have blurry affiliations with the Quds Force and have a long history working alongside Quds Force Commander Soleimani. Their placement in key positions in the PMU leadership and their various visits to the battlefield together with Soleimani suggest that Iran's operational control over PMU operational planning and implementation remains strong. On the tactical level, the Quds Force's effective control over surrogates seems to vary as well. In many instances, Quds Force operatives embed with local forces, not only providing operational advice, but also engaging directly in combat. In these situations of tactical control, when surrogates operate under direct direction of Quds Force commanders, surrogates act as de facto and de jure Iranian straight state organs. Despite the fact that the Quds Force seems to highlight ethical and moral behavior in their training programs, many human rights abuses conducted by the PMUs or the Jaish al-Shabi against sectarian outsiders seem to have occurred under the Quds Force's watch. After all, Iran's efforts to diminish its image as a sectarian force have been widely unsuccessful, considering that the narratives and symbols employed in the fight against ISIS are closely linked to Shiaism and the ideology of the Islamic Revolution. Conclusion As a country haunted by security paranoia and a profound inferiority complex, the Islamic Republic of Iran has since its founding in 1979 tried to find unconventional means to secure its survival. Therefore, its posture has been atypical for a state. Instead of relying on a professional military force able to either provide strategic defense or an expeditionary capability, Iran has relied on vigilantism and religious rhetoric to create a decentralized, unprofessional army of volunteers almost autonomously employing asymmetrical warfare domestically and overseas to achieve its objectives. 
A constitutive part of the strategy of decentralization and delegation has been the reliance on surrogates who, trained, equipped, and created through Iranian conduits, operate as the vanguard of the internationalist ideological narrative of the Islamic Revolution. At the heart of Iranian surrogate operations stands the IRGC, and its Quds Force in particular, as organizations with almost 40 years of experience in surrogate warfare. The Paz d'Iran, the Basij, and the Quds Forces have developed into the center of gravity of the Islamic Republic's strategic defense. Contrary to most arguments raised in the literature, Iran's externalization of the burden of warfare to surrogates is not limited to conflicts of marginal interest overseas. Much more, it has become the standard modus operandi for Iran to ensure the very defense of its sovereignty, territoriality, and ideology. Tehran's campfire strategy tries to externalize strategic defense to neighboring countries in an effort to commit strategic enemies, such as the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia, to engaging in hostilities outside the borders of Iran. That is to say, as much as surrogate warfare serves the ideological purpose of exporting the revolution in support of all Muslims, there is a very pragmatic, interests-related dimension to such warfare by delegate. By bogging down its declared enemies in overseas territories, Iran is provided with a freedom to maneuver internally. Surrogate warfare helps to soothe the Islamic Republic's security paranoia. Nonetheless, Iran has not been successful in really translating its influence in Lebanon, Palestine, Syria, Iraq, or Yemen into a tangible power to control. Surrogate operations have had a disruptive impact in these countries Iran has invested in. Hezbollah has become the champion of Shia communities, pushing out Israel from Lebanon after decades of disenfranchisement and oppression. Shia militias in Syria, supported by Russian air power, have been able to protect minority communities from the onslaught of the Salafi jihadist groups while ensuring that the Assad regime does not fall. In Iraq, the PMUs have been instrumental to the defeat of ISIS and the protection of Shia shrines. Hamas's constant rocket fire from the Gaza Strip has kept the IDF busy. Also, in Yemen, the Houthi rebels have tied down Saudi Arabia and the UAE to a costly military operation. However, except for possibly Hezbollah, most Iranian surrogates have been unable to seize, hold, and control territory in the long run. But that is not their purpose. Hence, rather than actually exporting the revolution and creating a new socio-political entity modeled along the lines of the Islamic Republic, Iranian surrogate warfare has been limited to ensuring the country's strategic defense, a task surrogates have helped to achieve successfully. The experience of the IRGC and the Quds Force in nurturing surrogate communities overseas under the grand strategic ideological umbrella of the Islamic Revolution, has been transformative in the Middle East, making Iran more successful in force partnering than any Western or Arab state. The key component of this disruptive impact is a clear ideological vision, effective intermediary organizations, and the readiness to grant surrogates a certain degree of autonomy. The Islamic Republic's expertise in building franchise organizations, mostly within sectarian in-groups and under clear ideological guidance, has developed into its most effective military capability.